if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've gathered together to surrender our lives. Say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. You're listening to the new Radical Together podcast with teaching from David Platt. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Radical Together podcast. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the previous episodes, you can access the podcast archive through iTunes or by going online to Radical.net. Today, David's message is from Matthew chapter 1 entitled Missions in Matthew 1. If you have a Bible, and hope you do, let me invite you to find Matthew chapter 1. So one of my aims in this podcast is to show how global mission is not just a part of the Bible here or there in this text or that text. One of my aims is to show that global mission is a driving passion behind all of the Bible, from the first chapter to the last chapter, everywhere in between, beginning to end in the Bible. God is showing us his desire, his passion to glorify himself in all nations, and as a result, as we read through the Bible, we need to understand the Bible in that backdrop. And not just understand it that way, but apply it accordingly. So just as global mission is not a compartmentalized part of the Bible, but a central passion in all the Bible, so also global mission should not be a compartmentalized part of our lives. Instead, it should be a central passion in all of our lives. And the more we read the Bible in light of what God is doing among the nations, the more we'll see our lives, look at our lives in light of what God is doing among the nations. And so for this podcast and the next one, these two episodes before Christmas in December, I want to take two traditional Christmas texts, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, and then the next episode, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. And I want to show you how these texts not only announce the birth of Christ to the world, but they shout God's passion for his glory in all nations. So let's let's start with Matthew chapter 1. Some people have called Matthew the single most important book in all the New Testament, simply because it contains the fullest, most systematic account of Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection, and it's unique. One of the great things about the Gospels, so the first four books of the New Testament, is that we have four different perspectives on the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. And each of these writers arranges his material in different ways with different emphases. So there's all all kinds of similarities, obviously, between them, but different gospel writers use different stories at different times and different ways to emphasize different things about Jesus. It's like the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is this multicolored diamond that you can look at from a variety of different angles, but every angle is unique, and every angle is glorious, and it's the same diamond you're looking at. So we got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them composed by a different writer, each written to a distinct audience, every one of them, though, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. So when you look at them, you see different God-inspired portraits of Christ in each of them. So John, for example, starts and then all throughout focusing on the divinity of, of Jesus. Luke, in his introduction, starts focusing on the humanity of Jesus and traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to the first human, Adam. Mark, intentional to show Jesus as a suffering servant in his gospel. And then Matthew, which we're about to dive into, if you were to summarize his portrait of Jesus, 
he seems to paint Jesus not not just as a suffering servant, though he's certainly that, but Matthew pictures Jesus more as a sovereign king. From the start, Matthew is making clear that Jesus came from the line of King David himself. And before David, even back to Abraham, the father of the people of Israel. So Matthew is starting his his gospel account with a clear intent. He wants to establish Jesus as a king in the line of David from the people of Israel going all the way back to Abraham. So that it kind of sets up these first 17 verses in Matthew, which if we're honest, we likely have a tendency to skip over or skim through because we think this is just a random list of names, genealogy here. But this is no random list of names. This is a carefully constructed theologically driven, and as we're about to see, globally significant, missiologically significant genealogy. So I want to read it, give a little bit of commentary along the way, and then step back and together just think about what this text means, and especially in light of God's passion for his glory in all nations. So before I start, one other general note. Uh, What we're about to read is not a comprehensive genealogy, meaning not every descendant in the family tree is listed here. In some cases, entire generations are skipped, and they're skipped in order that the genealogy might be arranged in groups of 14. If you jump down to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, Matthew says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the, uh, of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And Matthew arranged them that way, around this number 14, for a reason. It goes all the way back to the Hebrew name for King David. So this is a little bit of historical information, but it's the, it's the reason why Matthew emphasizes this. In the Hebrew, they had something called gematria, which is basically a way that they would assign a numerical value to certain words or names based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet that made up the, that word or name. So for your name, for example, based upon the Hebrew letters that would make up your name, there would be a number associated with your name. And the reason that's important is because according to the system of Demetria, the number associated with David's name was 14. King David associated with the number 14. So Matthew is being very intentional, even in small symbolic ways like this, to connect Jesus to King David from the very beginning. So with that set up, let's let's read through this first part of Matthew, this list of names. It seems like we should just skip over so we can get to the good stuff. I want to show you that there's some really good stuff here. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. So side note here, remember that Isaac was a miracle baby born to a mom, Sarah, who was shocked to find out that she would have a child. So that's obviously setting the stage for a mom in verse 16 named Mary, who was herself pretty shocked for different reasons to find out that she was going to have a child. So Abraham, the father of Isaac, this miracle child, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So Tamar, this is the first woman mentioned in the list. If you remember, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And the picture back in Genesis chapter 38 was sinful incest that led to the birth of these two twins, Perez and Zerah. So, so just keep that in mind. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, So that's the second woman mentioned, Rahab, a prostitute who was spared when the people of God came into the promised land. 
and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. There's the third woman mentioned, Ruth, a Moabitess, a people who are known for their sexual immorality, at one time practically forbidden to even be counted among the people of God. And then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So again, that's not every single generation in the line, but that's 14 generations tracing from Abraham to David. Now, from David, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's a fourth woman mentioned, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, brought into the kingly line through adultery and murder. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and then begins this list of kings in Israel leading up to the exile. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So that list is just dripping with Old Testament history. For Jewish readers who knew the Old Testament, every single one of those names sparked images and stories and emotions in their minds and their hearts. A few of those kings had honored the Lord, but most of those kings were evil, had led the people of God into sin and idolatry, leading to the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile, the deportation of Babylon. And then Matthew picks up from Babylon, eventually back to Jerusalem. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Okay, so that is one crooked family tree when you think about all the whole Testament history that's represented there. And this is the family tree through which God chose to step onto the pages of human history. So why is all this important? Why was it, why was it important for Matthew to start his account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus this way? Why, why was it important to the first people who read this? And why is this important to us 2,000 years later? Well, start by thinking about the first people who, who read this. Most of Matthew's readers were either Jewish people who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the promised king of the Old Testament, or they were Jewish people who were contemplating putting their faith and belief in Jesus as the Messiah. So that's why we've got this list in a way that Mark doesn't include this list. Mark is writing his gospel with Gentile readers predominantly in mind. So they don't need to see all this Jewish lineage leading to Christ. But for men and women who were trusting in Christ as the Messiah, or for men and women who had trusted in Christ as the Messiah, and they were losing their families and their possessions and their safety because of it, this was huge. So Matthew comes on the scene introducing Jesus as the king, and every single word is important here. Basically, in just the first verse, you just take Matthew 1.1, and then followed by those subsequent verses, but just that first verse, think of four things that Matthew tells us about Jesus. One, Matthew tells us Jesus is the Savior. He starts, says, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. So Jesus, which is the Greek form of the name Joshua or Yeshua which its name means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. 
Later in Matthew one twenty one, the angel says to Joseph, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior. God saves his people. How? Through sending Jesus. Remember, remember Joshua in the Old Testament, whose name means the Lord saves. He was the leader appointed by God to take his people into the promised land. So now Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves, is a leader appointed by God to take sinful people into eternal life. So first, Jesus is the Savior, Matthew says. Second, he's the Messiah. Matthew writes the book of the genealogy, not just of Jesus, but of Jesus Christ. And Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ literally means Messiah or anointed one. All throughout the Old Testament, there were promises of a coming anointed one, a Messiah who would deliver God's people in power. And Matthew says, this is him. This is the one we've waited for. In all these generations, we've looked forward to the one who would come from God, anointed by God, to deliver the people of God. And he is here. Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Third, he's the son of David. Matthew says in that first verse, now that title takes us all the way back to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, to the time when King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, and the Lord had told him, no, because David's son Solomon was going to do that. And in the context of that discussion, God made a covenant with David where God promised David two primary things. Let me read it to you, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. God said, when your days are fulfilled, he's talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, in those verses in the Old Testament, God's speaking to David. He's promising him two things. One, God says to David, from your life, a continual seed will endure to the end. Now, that's a promise on the one hand that that God was going to bless David with a, with a son, with Solomon. But we know this goes deeper than just Solomon because God is not just talking about the next generation here. He says the throne of his kingdom will be established forever. That word forever is really important. You look in 2 Samuel 7, that whole chapter, the word forever is repeated over and over again in the chapter five different times, verse 16, 24, 25, 26, and 29. And God is saying, David, your seed, your family is going to endure Forever. And when we read that word, forever, this is where you and I need to sit up and realize in 2014 that God was making a promise there in 2 Samuel 7 that is still active today. That promise in 2 Samuel 7 was literally shaping eternity. The line, the seed of David will endure. A continual seed will endure to the end. And so the second thing God's saying there is that an honored son will reign on the throne. Now, again, that's an immediate reference to Solomon, who would would reign after King David. But just like we just talked about, this throne is going to be established forever. You get down to chapter 7, verse 16, and God says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, 
This promise here in 2 Samuel 7 appears over and over again in the Old Testament. This promise that a continual seed will endure, an honored son will reign on the throne. All throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, you see them promising a day when an honored son from the seed of David will come and will reign. You think about the famous words that we recognize it often at Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, when the promise came through Isaiah, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this is this is reference to this promise in 2 Samuel 7 in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 11, just a couple chapters later, says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's the line of David. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So that's Isaiah referring back to 2 Samuel. Jeremiah does the same thing, Jeremiah 23. Now keep in mind, these prophets were speaking in dark days among the people of Israel, but they kept coming back to this promise over and over and over again. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So this is a promise that's continuing. There's so many other places in the Old Testament that reference this. Just just think about one more. Ezekiel, when the people of God were in exile, they'd been ripped apart from their homeland, Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. And then there they were wondering, have God's promises failed? And Ezekiel brings the word, no, God's promise is still Good. God says in Ezekiel 37, verse 24 and 25, my servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Now that's that's weird if you just think, okay, David? I mean, he's dead. How is he going to be king over them? How is he going to be their prince forever? But the point is, God had made a promise that through the line of David, God's kingdom would be established forever. So this is an, in 2 Samuel 7, this is an everlasting covenant about an everlasting king from the line of David. So now, at the start of the New Testament, writing to a people who for generations had longed for a promised Messiah to come through the line of King David, Matthew is not just giving us a list of names here to bore us to death. He's shouting loud and clear that the son of David, the honored son, the promised seed, he's here. He's here. He's here. He's the son of David. And he's also, so this, that, as if that's not enough, he's also the son of Abraham. So that's the fourth thing about Jesus here. It takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Matthew writes, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of the people of Israel which takes us back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham there when God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So here was the promise through Abraham that God would form a covenant people. I'll make of you a great nation, he said. A promise that God would give them a promised inheritance on earth. I will bless you. I'll give you the land that I will show you. Or it would become known as the promised land in the Old Testament. God would form them into his people in that place for his purpose. And ultimately, now here it is, a promise that God would use them to accomplish a global purpose. David will be back in just a moment, but I want to take a quick break and ask you to consider giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This special offering, taken once a year, provides nearly 60% of the International Mission Board's annual income. And when you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, 100% of your gift goes to support Southern Baptist missionaries all over the world. For more information, visit imb.org offering. And for other resources from David Platt, visit radical.net. There you can watch or listen to past sermons, read the Radical blog, or stay up to date on catalytic events like Secret Church. Here's David with the rest of today's message. God said, Abraham, you will be a blessing. And in you, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise from the very beginning of the Bible was reiterated. So not just in Genesis 12 and in 15, In Genesis 17, the Bible said in Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So not just one nation, not just one people, but a multitude of nations, a multitude of peoples, a global purpose here. And then chapter 17, verse 6 says, I will make you, God tells Abram, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from from you. Huh, so it just keeps getting better and better. Did you hear that? Abraham's line, through that line, God says, he's going to send a king. You get down to Genesis 17, verse 15 and 16, and God says to Sarah, Abraham's wife, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So the promise is God is going to send a king through Abraham's line, and that king, his kingdom, would one day expand to all people groups. We could keep going on and on through Genesis, but you get to the very end of Genesis, Genesis 49, verse 9 and 10, where you see Judah, who's also mentioned in the genealogy we read just a second ago in Matthew 1, Genesis 49, 10 says about him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, God says to Abraham and to his sons in the book of Genesis, I am forming a covenant people to accomplish a global purpose. And I will send a king through your line whose kingdom will be a blessing to all peoples and to whom all peoples will one day bow as king. So are you realizing this? Are you getting this? Nothing in history is accidental. Nothing. Everything happens for a reason. Every detail in the Old Testament from the beginning of the Bible is pointing to a promised king who would come. Every every detail in all of history revolves around a king who would come 
And now everything in all history revolves around a king who has come. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is the center of all history. Uh, you're not the center of history. I'm not the center of history. Our generation is not the center of history. Throughout history, billions of people have come and billions of people have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, rulers have come and gone. At the center of it all stands one person, Jesus the Christ. Everything in history is specifically and intentionally focused on him. And that is the bold claim with which Matthew begins this book. Matthew announces loud and clear from the beginning of this gospel that Jesus is the king of all history, which means Jesus is the king of your life. He is the king who reigns. And rules over all. And every knee will one day bow before him. And when you realize this. When I realize this. When we realize this. It changes everything about how we live. And how we view all of history. Do you realize So see it, that your life has been placed on the pages of human history. Feel this. Your life has been placed on the pages of human history for one reason. To worship and honor and obey and follow this king. And to play your part in spreading his kingdom. Oh, see that. Feel that. Let this soak in. This is more than just a list of names in history long ago. This this has ramifications, massive ramifications for your life, my life right now, which leads to two major takeaways I want to offer you based on the simple, powerful portrait of Jesus in Matthew 1. First takeaway is this. For you, for me, one, God saves us by his sovereign grace. So these are two takeaways. One, God saves us. Uh, saves sinners by his sovereign grace. This list of names in Matthew 1 is full of evil kings and sinful men and sinful women. Even, even the best in the list, like Abraham, David. Think about it. Abraham, the polygamist patriarch who lied about his wife twice. David, the adulterous murderer. And the list goes on and on and on. Men and women who rebelled against the Lord time and time again. This is amazing. The great, 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 Great-grandparents of Jesus hated God and were leading people to hate God. So clearly, Jesus came not because of Israel's righteousness, but in spite of Israel's sinfulness, which is what we see all over Scripture, right? We see the sinful responsibility of man, evil kings, evil men and women living their lives in rebellion against God and responsible to God for their sin. Yet, in the midst of it all, God was working in and through them according to his sovereign will. At no point, at no point were any of these kings, any of these men, any of these families outside of the sovereign control of God. You got people choosing to disobey God, choosing to run from God, and they're responsible for that. At the same time, you've got God in control at every moment, working in it all to bring about the birth of his son. This is a mystery. God sovereignly working through sinful men and women. You look at this list of women here, and there's a clear message that Jesus came for and, well, literally through. He came for and through the morally outcast. Four women in Matthew chapter 1, and all of them are in some way associated with 
not just sin, but sexual sin. You've got Tamar associated with incest, Rahab associated as a prostitute, Ruth, a Moabitess, a people known for their sexual immorality, the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't even say Bathsheba. He says the wife of Uriah is in the line because she committed adultery with David, who is not her husband. So you got adultery, sexual immorality, prostitution, incest. You think Matthew would have chosen some different women to include here. So why are these names included here in the line that leads to Christ? And the answer is, for the exact same reason, your name or my name might be included in the line that leads from Christ. Only, solely by the sovereign grace of God. Praise be to God that he delights in saving the sinful, immoral outcast. Just think about it. Think about it. Even who's writing this book? Matthew, the tax collector, the man who made his living ripping off the Jewish people. You get to Matthew 9, and the only people Matthew knows to invite to his house for a party are moral reprobates. Matthew knows he's the least likely person to be writing this gospel, and that's part of what makes it a gospel, right? What makes it good news? That God saves, not based on any merit in us, but totally based on sovereign mercy in Him. And praise God that He saves like that, because if He didn't, we'd all be damned. All of us. And one more thing, you think about these women, what all of them had in common was that they were all surrounded by sexual scandal, right? You think about the last woman then, mentioned in this genealogy, Mary a woman surrounded by sexual scandal, an unwed woman pregnant who claims to be a virgin? Oh, do you see the intricacies here in what would so, some would call a boring list of names? And, and Jesus is clearly coming here for and through the ethnically diverse. All of these women were also Gentiles, not Jewish women. Your wife's wife may possibly have been an Israelite, but this is like another reason why Matthew says, instead of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And all this leads us then to the second takeaway. So one, God saves us by his sovereign grace. And second, God saves us for his global purpose. Remember the promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. God promised to bless his people through Abraham's line for the sake of all peoples everywhere. And that's exactly what we see in Matthew's list. And it's exactly what we see throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has come to fulfill God's promise to bless his people. So the the book of Matthew is loaded with Old Testament references over and over and over again. Matthew's saying, here is what God's promised, and here's how God fulfilled it in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew is showing how Jesus came to bring salvation to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. But that's not all. Just as God promised to bless Israel, his people, for the sake of all peoples, so Jesus has come not just to fulfill God's promise to bless that people, the people of Israel, Jesus has come to accomplish God's purpose to bless all peoples. So we see him in Matthew pouring his life into 12 Jewish disciples. And then what does he tell them? You go and make disciples of all the nations. He says in Matthew 24, 14, the end will not come until this gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed to all peoples. 
in all the world. I'm telling you, I'm not just making up all this missions talk. It's all over the Bible, every page. It's the purpose of God from the beginning of history, fulfilled in the person of Christ, now being accomplished in the church through you and me, a people on a global mission to make this king known among all peoples, to spread his kingdom among every nation in the world. Yes, this is it, brothers and sisters. How does God save us? God saves you and me solely by his sovereign grace. Grace, And why does he save us? He saves you and me ultimately for his global purpose. This is the point of this genealogy in the book of Matthew. And this is the point of our lives. To receive this grace and then to live every single day dependent on the sovereign grace of God. And and then flowing from that to live every single day for the global purpose of God. To live and to work, to worship and honor and follow and obey this King. And then to live and to die, spreading His kingdom to all the peoples of the earth. This is why Jesus came. This is how Jesus saved us by his grace. And this is why God has saved us for his global purpose. God help us to connect the coming of Christ at Christmas with the purpose of God for our lives to make the news that Christ has come known among every people group on the planet. Let's pray. Let's give. Let's go toward that end. We're glad you joined us for another episode of Radical Together. For additional free resources, including those available in other languages, visit Radical.net slash resources. And again, for more information on the International Mission Board, you can go to imb.org. Join us next time for more teaching from David right here on the Radical Together podcast.